DW Living Planet with Charlie Shield. Hi, and welcome to the show. In this week's episode, we're digging into some of the controversy, concerns, and contradictions surrounding the critical minerals needed to power some important renewable technology. We hear from people in Puchuncavi in Chile who say that their region has been ruined by industrial mining and they want it back. This is where the story of the earth is told, and not just the story of Puchuncavi. These geosites are internationally significant because the layers of rock behind us tell us a part of Earth's history. And we talked to author and expert Salim Ali about how he believes mining and refining the precious metals that power our modern lives could be far more sustainable and socially just, if we do it right. We cannot throw the baby out of the bathwater, which has become a problem, I think, in a lot of the environmental discourse around metals and green energy transition even, is there's this sense of despair that, you know, we, we are uh, creating a problem to solve a problem. All that coming up. You're listening to Living Planet. I'm Charlie Shield. Renewable energies may derive from abundant, above-ground natural resources, sun, water and wind, that are pretty evenly distributed across the Earth. But at this stage, in order to harness that sweet, carbon-free energy, we still need resources that come out of the ground to do it. And they're only in select places on Earth. I'm talking about critical minerals, like lithium, iron, copper and cobalt. Now, the human suffering and environmental damage involved in the mining of these minerals is often referred to as part of the dark side of renewable energy, a price paid often by people in lower-income countries or poor communities in wealthier countries where these mines are located. But what if getting hold of these critical minerals wasn't so harmful? Is that even possible? you will have impacts in order to harness those materials for the green energy transition. Now, how we manage those impacts is key. It will require further investment, but it can be done. I reached out to author and expert Salim Ali, who says, yes, it is possible, if done correctly. And we'll hear more from Salim a little bit later in the show. But firstly, we're going to go to one of the places experiencing the negative impacts of mining. Now, in this region, it's not just from critical minerals, but a whole host of materials, including fossil fuels as well. This story comes from the coastal town of Puchuncavi in Chile. It's located in one of Chile's notorious sacrifice zones, regions that successive 20th century governments surrendered to industrial exploitation. Inhabitants here complain of water, soil and air pollution, and they say it's time for change. Evelyn McClafferty has more, with reporting by Anna-Marie Goretzky and Diego Contreras. Under overcast skies, fisherman Christiano Lagos steers his small motorboat through the Pacific Ocean off the coast of Chile. He sings joylessly about how no one has done anything about the toxic fumes in the area. 
Even when children started passing out, no one did anything, he says. Hostiano Lagos is one of the last fishermen of Punchincavi, a small community on the coast of the Pacific. But the seas here are contaminated, he says. We used to feed on the fish here. We ate good ceviche, but that's over now, because now we know that it makes you sick. Many people now have cancer. The culprit is obvious. On the outskirts of Punchuncavi, an industrial complex of about 500 hectares looms over the coast. Coal, petroleum, chemical and copper companies have settled here, lured by the lax environmental regulations. For decades, the industrial complex has been ground zero for wastewater and exhaust gases released into the sea and air, day and night. And the government has no plans to change this. Dubbed the Chilean Chernobyl, the Quintero Punchuncavi area is the country's biggest so-called sacrifice zone. For the past 50 years, industry and economic progress has taken precedence over everything else, including the environment and the people who live here. Wandering along the base of Punchuncavi's picturesque cliff tops, geologist Patricia Pinones stresses that the area is of unique geological value. As she talks, something nestled in the rock catches her eye, a bone fragment. It must be from a marine mammal, she says. Peñones is fighting for the protection and recognition of this geologically significant area. This is where the story of the Earth is told, and not just the story of Puchuncavi. These geosites are internationally significant because the layers of rock behind us tell us a part of Earth's history. Dolphins, sharks, a primeval sloth and the remains of snails, mussels and other invertebrates are just a few of the other fossils that have been found here. The layers of rock are like an open history book. That's why Pinones and her colleagues from the NGO Karkova are fighting for the region to be recognised as an official geopark by UNESCO. This would give the region international geoscientific significance. Chile's current government is now insisting on closing one of the factories and preventing further expansion of its industrial parks. For the first time, environmental protection is at the top of the agenda. But the municipalities are still waiting to see any real improvements. Air pollution levels are extremely high here, and it's harming the health of children in the region too. Pinones is meeting with a group of students and teachers at a local primary school. She often takes them on exploratory tours in the area. Today they set off into the misty mountains towards an abandoned mining site, the perfect place to analyse minerals. Pinones wants to show them firsthand the places that are worth protecting. Pinones' biggest wish is to open the students' eyes to the ecological and geological treasures of Panchuncavi. As they head back down the mountain, she empathetically appeals to the class not to forget what they've learned today. This is your heritage, she says. 
You are the ones who need to protect us. We share our knowledge with you so that you can preserve us in the future, she tells them. And now to dig into some of the problems surrounding extraction. And to do that, we're talking to Dr. Salim Ali, a professor of energy and environment at the University of Delaware in the United States, who, in his latest book, Soil to Foil, Aluminum and the Quest for Industrial Sustainability, addresses some of these key questions about how we can continue to get things out of the ground and turn them into useful technology in a sustainable, respectful way with a lower material footprint. Metals have defined human civilization. We define our development as a species through the Bronze Age, the Iron Age, and so on, uh, the Silicon Age in terms of non-metals also. But we need to think about now in this next phase of human development, how are we going to engage in these trade-offs in a way that makes sure that we have a sustainable future for our civilization? On Living Planet, we recently featured an interview with Siddharth Kara, the author of Red Cobalt, who spoke about the cost of cobalt mining in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. So I started off by asking Salim if this kind of human suffering that we're seeing in the DRC and the environmental ruin more broadly are just the price we pay for developing technology like electric car batteries, smartphones and laptops. Here's what he had to say. You know, I go back to Barry Commoner's famous work where he was considered one of the great uh, thinkers in sustainability in the 1970s. And he you know, wrote the famous book, uh, Closing the Circle. And um, one of his laws of ecology was there's no free lunch in the universe. And basically that is so true with this material energy nexus. You will have impacts in order to harness those materials for the green energy transition. Now, how we manage those impacts is key. Uh, We do need to recognize we will not have exactly the same landscape, a pristine landscape after mining, but we can do a pretty good job at ecological restoration of mine sites. Um, We can do a pretty good job of figuring out ways by which we can provide livelihoods and manage some of the social cultural impacts. It will require further investment, but it can be done. You need to do risk management as with any uh, human uh, enterprise, but we cannot throw the baby out with the bathwater, which has become a problem, I think, in a lot of the environmental discourse around metals and green energy transition even, is there's this sense of despair that, you know, we, we are... Uh, creating a problem to solve a problem. And uh, I think there is a way to do it where there are some win-win outcomes. It won't be a complete win for every single stakeholder, but it could very well be one which can be managed. So like you were giving the example of DRC and uh, cobalt, there are ways whereby we can improve the governance of cobalt mining. We can invest in uh, the same kind of standards. We can have greater accountability. I have uh, called for a global treaty on mineral supply, which ensures that there's much more enforceability across the world uh, around standards, but also securing supply so that we, we can make sure that geopolitics does not come in and lead to inefficient uh, resource extraction policies. So uh, there is a problem, but I'm concerned that there is a lot of this uh, kind of nihilism around the the issue. 
And also, this is becoming politically used by people who don't want the green transition. So you have like the Cobalt book you mentioned, you know, very well-intentioned author recently who published this book on Cobalt called Cobalt Red, which has been a runaway bestseller. But lo and behold, the reason it became a bestseller was that a very prominent podcast host, Joe Rogan, who has an 11 million people audience invited him to speak about it. And, uh, you know, Rogan's contention was much more, he was taking the conversation around, well, why do we need electric cars? Electric cars are creating the same havoc that fossil fuel cars are doing. And so people should just not have the electric car transition. And I think that's a very problematic angle where some of these well-intentioned narratives about human rights are then being co-opted in a way which is going to try and subvert the green energy transition. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if I'm hearing you correctly, there'll always be some level of sacrifice involved in extracting these critical minerals and processing them, but it doesn't have to involve the incredible human suffering we're seeing in the DRC or widespread environmental ruin. If managed and regulated properly, we can reduce those impacts. Absolutely. I wouldn't use the word sacrifice because it entails a kind of determinism. I would say there are trade-offs. You know, there are trade-offs and you just have to decide what those trade-offs are uh, that are acceptable and those which are not acceptable. And uh, we need to think as a system. We can't just think about our own little turf, which has been the biggest problem with what we call nimbyism around mining, not in my backyard. And that has partly led to mining going to places where there's less governance because people in a lot of wealthy parts of the world, they want this perfect setup and they just don't want any kind of damage. So an example of this NIMBY phenomenon is what has happened with the rare earth mining in Australia, uh, where the mining is allowed, but the processing, because there's concern about environmental impact of the processing waste, uh, was not allowed uh, to move forward. And they had to set up a processing site in Malaysia. And we have to think about uh, sharing the risks for extraction. And it shouldn't just be the people who are at the bottom of the economic barrel who have to share the greater burden of the risks. And that's what we refer to as the just transition. So it's obviously really important to control and manage the way we get these things out of the ground to respect local environments and communities and the wider impacts on biodiversity and such. But another important aspect that you talk about is the way we design these devices and this kind of technology in the first place so that we can reduce its impact from the first step. And one concept you talk about to explain this is planned obsolescence, which I think is an important term, an important concept. So could you explain what that means? Yeah, so this is a term in economics where basically products are designed for a specific life because to make money on a product, you want to have constant throughput of production. For example, your computers, you know, if if Dell or Apple made computers which were going to last a, a very long time, they would not really be able to sell more computers. And so they have this kind of planned obsolescence built into the life of the computer because they want consumers to buy more computers. Now, some of that planned obsolescence makes sense from 
an environmental perspective, if we are going to have innovation and you're going to make products more efficient in the long term. So you have planned obsolescence. In the case of, for example, cars, it's probably good that we're not driving the same, you know, 1950s uh, cars, even though that would have been a very durable outcome, but they were so inefficient for in terms of their energy usage that probably having a new product made more sense. Right now, the problem with planned obsolescence is a lot of these products are designed not to be modular because the companies want you to just buy the whole new product. And that has to change if we're really going to move towards sustainability, because ultimately we do want to dematerialize. We want to find a way to be able to do more with less. Mm -hmm. To use what we have to create new things or to repair things. Exactly, exactly. And that's why in places like Europe, you have now the right to repair laws that, you know, people are being, the companies are being forced to allow for servicing rather than forcing people to buy a new product because there's just no option for the consumer to repair something. It's also important to note that resource efficiency in and of itself is not enough. You have to still monitor total consumption. So, for example, you can have a situation where you make products very efficient, but that allows you to reduce price and that can spur greater demand for the product. So with hybrid cars, this happened where people started driving more because they thought that they were being efficient. So you have to always keep your eye on the ball with the total consumption. And so right now, China is currently leading the way with the extraction and processing of critical minerals for all this kind of technology. Do you perceive that as being a a negative thing, that one country might have a monopoly over these minerals that are so crucial to global decarbonisation and switching away from fossil fuels that have historically been problematic because of how they've been dominated by select countries? Yes, you know, I think that uh, the green energy transition is an area where despite all the other disagreements that uh, China and the West have, there there should be cooperation over it. Uh, And we should be focusing on where is it ecologically most efficient to mine and process the metals. Mm -hmm. You know, if we get into this kind of resource nationalism that we have to mine and process everything in our own lands, Uh, it may become a problem because minerals are geologically determined. It's not like a factory where you can decide where the best tax break is and you put the factory there. Um, You have to figure out where the the ore is. You have to figure out where is the best energy resource to smelt and process the ore. So, for example, processing ores like for uh, aluminum, One of the best places to have aluminum smelters is Norway because Norway has abundant hydropower, which is, you know, relatively clean energy. And so you do have, you have Norsk Hydro is a major world producer of aluminum, including recycled aluminum because of the energy source being there that's clean and and cost effective. You wouldn't want every country to say, we have to have our own energy source. We have to have our own smelters. That would be a bad idea. So with China, I would say they have built the infrastructure for processing of rare earths over the past three decades to the point if we try to replicate that from an ecological perspective, it's going to be challenging. Now, that doesn't mean we don't look for diversification of supply. We should. 
I think it makes sense too. And mm-hmm. the fact that Europe is investing in diversification of supply is a good thing. Countries like Finland, which have been very forthcoming and allowing for mineral extraction and very practical and not showing as much nimbyism as other parts of Europe, that's a good thing. Same in the case of the US, that there there is diversification in places like Missouri and other parts of the US where they're going to be mining critical metals and processing them. That's a good thing. But it should be done with ecological efficiency in mind. And a rapid transition away from Chinese production is not practically possible. And we have shown that from some recent research we published in a peer-reviewed journal. And so one more thing I wanted to touch on was something that you did explore in your book, which is the increasing exploration or interest in mining the deep sea for these minerals. So as the demand for these minerals just grows and grows, companies are seemingly increasingly looking to the deep sea as an option for one place to source them. But this is something that is highly controversial and there are a lot of concerns that have been expressed about the potential unknown environmental consequences. Do you share those concerns? Yes, I certainly share the concerns on biodiversity impacts. There are some amazing uh, organisms in the deep sea, uh, which you do not find elsewhere. Uh, But it's again a trade-off question, right? You also have amazing organisms in the Amazon rainforest and in the Congolese rainforest. In the deep sea, you don't have one entire trophic layer of Uh, organisms, which is plants, because there's no sunlight there. So you don't have plants, but you have archaea, you have bacteria that are amazing. Uh, You you know, so you have to figure out, navigate. You have, there's less social impact. There's more questionable biodiversity impact. There is less waste impact because the manganese nodules in the deep sea, which is what are likely to be mined first, are very high concentration ores. So there's not going to be any tailings dams, which is a huge problem with terrestrial mining. And we have done studies comparing waste impacts of deep sea and terrestrial mining, and the deep sea mining comes out much better in terms of waste. There could be plumes, but you have plumes generated naturally in the oceans from volcanic activity. So we can look at the science and see how organisms have adapted to plumes from massive volcanic eruptions versus plumes from deep sea mining and let the science do the talking. And there's good data to say that it's possible. And what I find puzzling with the opposition to deep sea mining, I think we should be cautious and all kudos to the environmentalists who raise awareness on concerns. But think about we've been mining oil and gas under the sea for decades. Mm -hmm. And it is far more risky, far more dangerous because as we have seen with so many of the accidents like the Deepwater Horizon disaster, you can have catastrophic explosive impacts of extraction of fossil fuels from uh, the ocean. And the activism has completely shifted from concerns there to the deep sea mining, which has not even happened and does not have any of those kinds of risk profiles that you have of fossil fuel extraction from the deep sea. That I find really puzzling because this has become a very nice rallying cry for uh, donors who want to, you know, save the deep sea organisms around an activity which hasn't started yet. So it's become much easier to raise funds for it in the activist circles, in my view, 
And so they have shifted gears much more towards this than what they should be. I am, in my view, more worried about is the oil and gas extraction from the deep sea, which has both carbon impacts and biodiversity impacts and catastrophic damage impacts. So that that's what I see. It's it's one it's an area which deserves to be scrutinized, but it should be looked at with the science, with the the data availability that we have, and the trade offs between this the land and the sea, and the social impacts. There is no question are much less in the deep sea than on land. Salim Ali, thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating speaking to you on Living Planet today. Thank you so much, Ali. That was Salim Ali, Blue and Gold Distinguished Professor of Energy and Environment at the University of Delaware in the United States, giving us his perspective on the critical minerals debate and talking about his latest book, Soil to Foil, Aluminum and the Quest for Industrial Sustainability. And if designing electronic products in a modular, easy-to-take-apart way is central to reducing their impact, as Salim said, then another important aspect is how we recycle and reuse those individual parts. So to end today's episode, we're going to take you to India, where a small startup company in Bangalore in the country's southeast is currently trying to do just this. Here's Aditi Rajagopal with reporting from Gerhard Zonleitner. Wearing purple overalls, rubber orange gloves and a face mask, Jagam Abbas expertly gets down to dismantling another electric battery using a type of screwdriver. He's been working at the Atero recycling plant in Bangalore for the past 18 months. The former day labourer is proud of his job. And there'll be plenty of work to keep him busy for years to come. He tells us that people used to commute in vehicles that caused pollution that causes health issues. But now, a growing number of people in India are switching to electric vehicles. In 2022, India's EV sales passed 1 million for the first time. And experts estimate that demand is only going to keep on rising. Instead of gasoline or diesel, electric vehicles run on batteries, which at the moment are mainly lithium-ion based. It's an environmental conundrum, not just because the process of getting them out of the ground can be problematic, but also because the batteries usually only have a lifespan of five to seven years. Moshmi Mohanty from the Centre for Science and Environment in New Delhi tells us more about the problem. We produce about 50,000 tonnes of lithium-ion waste in the country. Very little of it actually gets recycled. Back at the recycling plant, old computer modems are being unpacked from a container truck. For about three years now, the Atero company has been recycling lithium-ion batteries, bringing their component parts back into the raw material cycle. It's a new industry. The batteries are full of valuable raw materials that India has historically had to import from all over the world. And there's an additional environmental component to this jigsaw. Toxic substances in the discarded batteries can leach into the ground via landfill sites, making the recycling of them all the more important. The vice president of operations at Atero, Mandeep Gusen, explains the recycling process. The cells goes into the shredder, they are shredded properly, then the black mass, we, what we do is the black powder inside the battery is called as black mass, we separate that from the casing of the battery. And then... That black mass refining process is a further process where using different hydrometallurgy and electrometallurgy techniques 
to extract metals like cobalt metal sheet nickel magnesium copper lithium carbonate and other compounds are also recouped from the old batteries these raw materials can then be used in the production of new batteries a solution that saves money and makes more environmental sense than extracting fresh minerals from mines around the world which takes a toll on local environments and communities the chief executive of atero and co-founder is nitin gupta he explains in a simple way what exactly happens at his factory we call our recycling process urban mining because we extract the same metals that come from the mine but we actually don't physically dig up the earth we are taking waste that is generated by consumers and industries around the world there are numerous companies like atero recycling lithium ion batteries however the volume of batteries currently being recycled is still very small especially given the amount of waste expected in the future Marshmi Mohanty from the Center for Science and Environment in New Delhi and who we heard from earlier says the battery recycling industry is still in its infancy. Battery recycling is something that the entire world is still trying to figure out. There is still there needs to be a lot more I think investment into its R&D. That is one important thing. And the other thing also is that we still don't have enough volumes, no. From 2035 India plans to limit sales of new vehicles to zero emissions models only. Experts believe that by the end of the current decade more than half of all new vehicles will already be all electric. Battery recycling is an important factor in achieving the complete switch to e-mobility in India and if possible under conditions that are both economically and environmentally sound. That's all for this week's Living Planet. If you're enjoying the show and you have a moment, let us know with a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And for those of you that have left us reviews, thank you so much. We're so glad to hear from you and to know that you're enjoying listening. Thanks this week to Vibka Tegmeier and Gerd Georgi in the studio and to Elliot Douglas for help with production. I'm Charlie Shield. We'll be back next week with more environment stories from around the world. Music